0: Let's pray together. God, we behold you. You are the only one who is worthy of that kind of praise. God, we thank you. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. You created all things. You created us. You created us to live for your glory. And I pray this morning as we open your word, we would know how to do that in the midst of a world that doesn't love you or doesn't know you and if that world comes after us how do we continue to worship you and to proclaim you when we feel under attack i pray that you would help us this morning in jesus name i pray amen you may be seated take your bibles and turn with me to first peter I'll be reading from chapter 3 in just a moment. The more I study scripture, the more I am amazed at the brilliance of God, the the wisdom of God. He is beyond all that we can think or imagine. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than all all of our thoughts, and yet the more you study God and his brilliance and his wisdom, there is this bold simplicity that kind of catches you off guard at times. And I think as Christians, sometimes we try to come up with all these methods and systems and techniques in order to try to help us accomplish God's purposes on earth. And it's almost like sometimes God comes along and says, you know, it's it's not that complicated. It's, it's not that hard. It, I'm going to boil this down for you, God says, so that you can understand it, so that you can grasp it. And God says, if you just do it my way, if you just follow the simple commands I give you, I will bless you, I will prosper you, I'll watch over you, I will accomplish in you far more than you could have ever invented on, on your own. And so... One of my goals as your pastor is to lead us in trusting that God's ways are the best ways and if we follow him and his ways the best that we can, we can trust him with the results. I'm convinced that if we follow God's model, it will position us to carry out his mission in the world. Let me remind you of a place where you as a church have already done this and made steps in this direction. If you remember, just a couple years ago, uh, we approved a change at Bethel in the way we structure our leadership, and we moved uh, to a structure of elders and deacons, and we based that leadership structure on passages like 1 Timothy In Titus and in Acts, you can read about how those two positions work together and what they are. And then we took about a year to transition from our other model into that current model. And let me tell you three amazing things that have happened uh, since we've done that. Number one, between our elders and deacons, if you add up the number of people that are serving in those positions, we now have more people in leadership positions than we had under the old model, which is really cool. We have, that means we have more ideas, we have more thoughts, we have more investment uh, in, in human resources. Secondly, because now we have this separation of duties, the Board of Elders kind of carried their role and the Board of Deacons carry their role, uh, we can concentrate better on those specific roles of leadership. And it has been really neat for me to watch our board of elders kind of step into that role and take on a lot of sometimes deep and and difficult spiritual matters. But they've done that and they've done that with joy and and with grace. And the third thing that has happened, and really this has been much to my surprise, uh, but I had another conversation this week uh, with another Mennonite pastor. This is probably the third or fourth conversation I've had like this over the last year, uh, where one of these pastors will call and say, hey, our leadership structure is not working. Uh, We have a a system of kind of tradition and committees and so forth. And I heard you guys switch to something else. Can you tell me about that? Sure, no problem. And, And as I describe kind of what we've done, there's this reaction of, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking about. That, thats exactly what I see in Scripture. Can you send me whatever documents you have that show you, uh, show me what you did? And I—I happily do that. I send them, and I just want you to know that when I do that, I always credit you, because you all helped us to make that change. Uh, and I'm convinced that you, along with me, kind of looked at Scripture and said, "It's not that complicated." This is the model that God kind of set out. This is what he says is best. Why wouldn't we follow that? And I don't want to tell you that so that you get some kind of a a sinful pride about yourself. But I do want to say this. You are leading the way, not just for our church, but for other churches in our denomination as you demonstrate a willingness to follow God's word, whatever it says. You should be commended for that. Uh, That is... Uh, an attempt on our behalf to honor God and watch him bless those attempts, even sometimes when we come with a bit of trepidation. Like, Is this going to work? Uh, we trust God and we say, we're going to do it uh, like this. This morning, in 1 Peter 3, we're going to come across another passage that I think carries some of the same deep, wise instruction of God and at the same time, when you boil it down, it's, it's really quite simple. It's, it's pretty easy. And so it becomes a matter of obedience, not do I understand it. It's going to be easy to understand. The question is, am I going to obey it? Will I do it like God says, or am I going to try to invent something on my own and try to, to do it another way? So as you know, as we've been studying through this book, 1 Peter, Peter's writing to a church that's under persecution. Of course, this is first century uh, when Peter's writing this, but persecution of the church has not gone away over the last 2,000 years. And I would argue maybe over the last 50 or 60 years in at least America, we've seen this ramping up of persecution or marginalization of, of Christians. And so Peter is writing this book to equip the church to know what to do in the face of that persecution. So in chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 2, he reminds the believer of who they are, their calling in Christ, their new birth, their inheritance that's being kept for them in heaven. He reminds them of God's grace, of God's discipline that keeps them on the path of obedience. And then in the middle of chapter 2, he started to talk in very practical terms about how this looks in real life. If you look down to your Bibles, I want to read chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 because he kind of sets the stage with these two verses. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. After Peter writes that, then he takes those little words, honorable conduct, and he describes them individually, what that looks like, in terms of how we respond to governments, how we respond to our bosses, how we respond to spouses. And then he gets to this section we're at this morning, and he gives kind of a summary. He kind of wraps it up, and he says, If you're going to survive persecution at the hands of the Gentiles, Here's what you've got to be, and here's what you've got to do. So follow along as I read our text this morning. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I like Peter. One of the reasons I like Peter is because he has a pastor's brain when it comes to sermon delivery. Look what he does at the very beginning of verse eight. He says, finally, and then he writes two and a half more chapters. He is literally in the middle of the book and he says, finally, that's what every pastor does in conclusion. And then he speaks for another half hour. Right? This is what Peter is doing. He says, finally, but actually this finally here is, is wrapping up this little instruction that it began in verse 11 of chapter 2 and he is concluding it now in the beginning here in chapter 3 and verse 8. He's wrapping up this section on how to live honorably among the Gentiles. He talked about it on an individual level and now Peter is going to back Back out, and he's going to say, all right, on a macro level, at a church level, how do you do this? What does it take to face persecution? So notice in verse 8, he says, finally, all of you. Okay, so he's talking to the whole church now. And what he's going to do in verse 8 is he's, he's going to tell us a number of things that we need to be doing internally as a church. That's all of you sitting in this room. And then in verse 9, he's going to say, Externally, here's what you do now when unbelievers come at you. Internally and then externally, all right? So verse 8, he gives us five characteristics. Five characteristics that a church must have if they're going to survive the trouble that's coming. If you're here this morning, as we go through these five, You're going to need to answer the question in your brain, do I have these? Do I have these? Number one, look what he says. You must have unity of mind. That means being unified in spirit or having a like-mindedness, sharing the same thoughts and attitudes. Unity of mind does not mean uniformity but it means cooperation in the midst of diversity. Unity of mind does not mean uniformity. It means cooperation in the midst of diversity. We're not all going to agree on how things should be done, but we are going to agree on what needs to be done and why it needs to be done. All of you sitting in this room have different Talents and gifts that God has given you, and, and that's a wonderful thing, but all those talents and gifts mean that you're going to approach problems with a difference of opinion that's bound to occur. In fact, Wednesday night at our members' meeting, we'll be talking about some things, where we'll have some differences of opinions. That's okay, and it's okay because it's explained like this by a guy named David Walls. He says... Quote, the key is not differences. The issue is how those differences are handled. Believers should live and minister together so that the differences do not divide the church, but serve to enrich its life and work. To live in harmony means Christians should pursue the same primary purpose of serving God and extending love to others instead of being fueled by individual and selfish interests. I like to quote a guy named Albert Moeller. Uh He's a, a president of a seminary up in Kentucky, and a number of years ago, he gave this model that I just love to use. It kind of helps me think through theological and practical differences among believers and among churches. And and he calls it a theological triage. Okay, so. If you go to the hospital ER, your triage, they they rank things in in order of importance. And so, Moeller has these three levels of doctrinal beliefs and practices. That first level is what we call first-order Christian doctrines. It's things which all Christians in every place around the world believe and hold to be true. Things like... Jesus is God. We believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in the in the Trinity. On those issues, there is uniformity. We, we all believe the same. Like for example, uh, Jesus is God. If you deny that Jesus is God, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but you cannot call yourself Christian. Because every Christian, by definition, believes that Jesus was both God and man. He was the God man. Okay, that's a first-order doctrine. Those are the things in which there is uniformity. But then you drop below that and you have what Moeller called second-order doctrines. These are things like mode of baptism. Who should Get baptized, adults or infants. Calvinist leanings or Arminian leanings. Gifts of the spirit. Are they operative today or are they not operative today? Maybe even worship styles might kind of fit in there. In each of those categories, there is a sorting of such among believers. But believers look at other believers who differ in those categories and say, you're still a Christian. We don't deny your Christianity because you might believe something other in that category. So you have first order. We all believe those. Second order. We have some differences, and then you have third order doctrines. Third order doctrines are are things where there could be a wide variety of opinions. What color should the carpet be uh, at, at church? Uh, how are we going to design the the new church sign at the end of the? Lane and so, and so on and so forth. Those you can have vast differences uh, of of opinions there, but yet you can cooperate together. You work together regardless. First order doctrines, we cannot quibble on those. Th- those n- never change. There has to be uniformity. Second and third order doctrines, uh, those those can be differences, but you can work together in in cooperation. It's when churches split over third order doctrines that become really an embarrassment uh, to the church. I read this story about uh, two churches. Both of them had the same name and they were one mile apart from each other. And what happened was 40 years earlier, there was a split over fried chicken. There were two ladies in the church that did not get along very well. And both of them brought fried chicken to the potluck lunch. The pastor went through the line, not knowing that there was this dispute, picked up one of the pieces of chicken and said it was the best chicken he'd ever had in his life. The second group picked up their stuff and left. They went down the road and built a new church, started a second church over fried chicken. Now, as you and I know, there had to be been a lot more to that story right? That was probably the tip of the iceberg. Uh, There was something else going on there, but that church was willing to split ways to be divided ultimately over a comment about fried chicken. Let me tell you something. Churches that split over things like that will never survive real persecution. Mark it. If you're splitting over things like that, You will never survive when the real persecution comes. If a church cannot have unity of mind over some of those differing opinions, if a church member cannot accept that someone else's opinion might have been passed over their own opinion, that kind of church will have no chance. When unbelievers attack. And so Peter comes along in verse 8 and he says, The first thing internally that a church has to have is unity of mind. Division and dissension only give Satan opportunities to see the cracks and expose the cracks and tear a church apart. And you know that churches have to be prone to this or Peter would never have written it. It's true. We struggle with things like this. So Peter had to write it. First, you have to have unity of mind. Secondly, in verse 8, Peter says you got to have sympathy among yourselves. And some of your translation says compassion. Compassion or, or sympathy. It's not just understanding the feelings of somebody else, but it's doing something about it. So James says it like this in James chapter 2. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, brother. Be warmed and filled without giving him the things that he needs for the body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, true faith acts. It doesn't just understand what's going on with someone else, but it does something about it. A church that's prepared for persecution is a church that's looking out for each other, caring for one another, compassion toward one another. If there's a need in the church, the church is figuring out how do we meet that need. That's what a church does. We don't just pray about it, although we certainly do that, but we act out of sympathy. So there's unity of mind, there's sympathy. Peter says next, "There's brotherly love." Now, this isn't this isn't the first time that Peter's talked about it. Back earlier in the chapter, he talked about brotherly love. He's describing there an authentic, deep, godlike love for other believers. Now, let me ask you a question. Before I do, I want you to turn to the person to your left and look at them. Just look at them. Don't stare, just glance, come back. Now look at the person on your right, all right? And maybe go down the aisle a little bit. Look down, lean forward, look down. Do what good Mennonites do. Turn your neck and look who's behind you. Do you love that person? Do you really love that person that you just looked at? Or do you just tolerate them? I think Peter here says, you got to know if you have brotherly love because if you're just tolerating that person, you're going to bail on them when the persecution comes. You got to love them like a brother, like a sister. It's a family. Fourth, Peter says, a prepared church has a tender heart. It's it's fascinating to me that in Ephesians 4, 32, Paul ties this tenderness to forgiveness. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When you are tender towards someone, you are quick to forgive them. Listen, let's be honest with each other. There are times when we are going to sin against each other. Sometimes that's what brothers and sisters do. They sin against each other. But if we are tender toward one another, we are also going to be quick to go to that brother or sister and say, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Sometimes I hear long after the event that that has happened here at Bethel. That just thrills my heart. This isn't a public thing. This is a private thing where people are going to each other and saying, I did you wrong. Will you forgive me? That's what it means to be Tender toward one another When that is happening There is camaraderie there And again, we're family Brothers and sisters Sometimes fight But when they're attacked from the outside They are like glue You come at them and they're like a unit That's what Peter has in mind here When you're tender toward one another When you're forgiving one another When you love one another And you have unity of mind and compassion You're like a team You're one. You're ready. We stand or we fall together. And all of that comes together and happens with this final mark that Peter lays out. He says, you got to have a humble mind. Because humility is the foundation in many ways. Because a humble person says, I put your needs ahead of my own. It's pretty hard to fight with someone when you're putting their interests in front of yours. These five marks have to be true of Bethel if we are to survive the persecution that's coming. And in order for them to be true of Bethel as an institution, they have to be true of you. Do you have unity of mind? Do you have sympathy? Compassion? A humble heart? A tenderness? We have to work hard, hard at these We have one what statement, that is to love God and love other people. And we have one why statement, because we are in it to make disciples for Jesus Christ. How do we do that? We move as one. One in unity, one in direction, so that when we're attacked from the outside, we don't just survive, we thrive. So assuming we're doing all of that, now Peter says, all right, here's here's this body moving in unity. What do you do when the external comes? Okay, So he's going to turn his attention. What do you do when this one body, this one unit is moving in the same direction? They're following the same command. They've got the same goal. And all of a sudden, they're attacked by Satan. They're attacked by an unbelieving world. They're attacked by a corrupt government. How should a a church respond? Well, look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. When you and I are attacked, or really in, in any situation in life, we can respond in one of three ways. Warren Wiersbe says it like this. He says, we can return evil for good, which is the satanic way of dealing with things, or we can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the human way of responding to things, or we can return good for evil, which is divine. That's where we want to land, at the divine. And I think as Peter was these words, I think the words of Jesus were echoing in his mind. He's remembering back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus writes these infamous words. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Jesus goes on to say, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The guy writing this, Peter, as he's reflecting on this, is the same guy who tried to chop off a guy's ear to defend himself. You think this passage meant a lot to him? I think this idea of returning good for evil, love for hate, is ringing in Peter's mind, and he says, you know what? It's not an eye for an eye. It's a blessing for a curse. How do I do that? How do I give a blessing when I'm being persecuted for my faith? I think there's at least three things that you could be doing. One, you could be praying for that person who's coming after you. Two, you could be treating them kindly. And three, you could be forgiving them even when they hurt you deeply. How is that possible? How do you do that? How do you do that when it doesn't feel right? I've been harmed. I've been persecuted. Somebody's come after me. How am I supposed to return good for evil? I think sometimes I probably sound like I'm I'm beating uh, the same drum over and over and over again. And I'm going to risk beating that same drum again. I think it's this. Until we come to understand... The absolute sovereignty of God over all things, over all times, over all people, and over all circumstances. We will never be able to carry out what Peter says here. If we think that somehow God is out of control, then we will not be able to do what Peter and our Lord say here. But if we believe that God is firmly in control, that he is aware, that he is working, that he is involved, then we can do these things because he has given us his strength to do them. Look what Peter does in verses 10 through 12. I, I love how he turns our attention to this very thought. He quotes here, from Psalm 34, one of my favorite psalms. I had to memorize the whole psalm, 22 verses or so, uh, for one of my classes back in the day. And Peter draws out these magnificent truths from the psalmist, and he applies them right here to people who are facing trial and persecution. Notice what he says, verse 10, in your Bibles. Whoever desires to love life and see good days... Well, who wouldn't want to love life and see good days, right? That's all of us. So he says, all right, if you want to love life and you want to see good days, here's how you do that in the middle of being persecuted. Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In other words, don't yell back. Don't revile back. Don't lie. Instead, do good. Seek for peace. Run after it. It's the the opposite of a pessimistic attitude. Hear me on this. I I think this is critical. You can endure life, you can escape life, or you can enjoy life. Those are are your three options. You can either just endure it, you can escape it, try to run away, or you can enjoy life. Life, And I think it hinges on your faith in God's sovereignty. Is he ultimately in control? Can he handle my situation? Is he even aware that bad things are happening to me right now? I think so. Because look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous... He sees. And his ears are open to their prayer. Yeah, he hears. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me remind you of something that should always settle your soul in the midst of any kind of persecution. You serve a big God. You serve a sovereign God and all powerful and all present and all knowing God. He is absolutely aware of your situation and he is sustaining you through the power of Jesus Christ. And you can rest assured that he will settle the score someday. You don't have to do that. He'll settle the score. You don't have to fight back. What do you have to do? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then you bless those who curse you. It's remarkably simple, but deeply profound. Because it takes a trust in a Savior who led the way and showed you how to do that. And he died on the cross for your sin and he rose again so that you could have His power within you when you repent and you follow after him. Are you ready for this? It's coming. It's coming. The persecution is coming. Are you up for the challenge? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray and make sure. God, we don't know when or how persecution will come. We pray that it won't come in deep and heavy ways. But we have no idea. All you've told us is to be ready. And whether it's little acts of persecution that are committed against us or whether it is massive persecution that believers in other parts of our world already face every day. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that internally, as a church, as individuals, we would have a verse 8 mindset. So that when verse 9 comes, we have the power of Christ within us to return a blessing for the cursing, knowing that you are in control. You're watching. You're hearing us. Your eyes are on us. Your face is against those who do evil. Ultimately, as we read earlier, you will avenge. We don't have to do that. Father, that instead we're a shining light. And I pray that in our pursuit of peace and love toward others, we would have the opportunity to tell them why. Because we've been redeemed by a gracious and loving God and we simply want them to know about it. Father, help us, I pray, in Jesus' name.